Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, SDS Nation, and welcome to this special episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime, and sometimes we deliver America's most beloved and one of its best-selling authors, and that is what is happening today, a very, very special show. Uh, and of course, uh, today we're also going to be speaking about arguably one of the worst crimes ever committed against uh, humankind, so not too far off from the true crime genre and a uh, circuitous kind of way. Uh, I just want to say before we get cracking here, and before I introduce the VIP of all VIP best guests, Tuesdays with Maury. Uh, I went to Brandeis University, the same uh, place where Maury Schwartz was a professor, the same school uh, that Mitch Album attended. And uh, for years, I've wanted to tell my mother's story. And that book has always been uh, sort of the seed, the inspiration for what has now become Surviving the Survivor and Mitch Album, who I will uh, openly admit I harassed and hounded. But uh, he's a mensch, a gentleman and a scholar, and he actually uh, has written a blurb for the book, which is going to help us immensely. Without further ado, let me introduce Mitch Album, born, I have to say this, in Passaic, New Jersey, uh, our home state, uh, the best state, next to maybe Michigan and Detroit. Uh, he is the middle child um, to Rhoda and Ira uh, Album. He's an internationally renowned and best-selling author, a journalist, a screenwriter, a playwright, a radio and television broadcaster, and a musician. His books have collectively sold more than 41 million copies worldwide. You heard that right. 41 million copies. They've been published in 51 territories in 48 languages. And he's not just about writing books and uh, making money. He's also about giving back a ton. In 2006, Mitch founded the nonprofit Say Detroit. Uh, he also operates a home and a school in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, uh, a language my mother speaks. Uh, he visits that monthly with his wife, Janine, in Michigan. And as I uh, mentioned just a little while ago, he is also a graduate of Brandeis University, as am I. We've had... Uh, parallel careers, but one of them has been successful and the other has been moderately, I don't know what. Uh, Mitch, you're actually, you're speaking today with Malcolm Gladwell at the uh, 90 the famed 92nd Street Y. You gonna be talking about the book? Yes, uh, I'm here right now, actually. It's, uh, I'm in the <laughs> dressing room of the 92nd Street Y. It's nice to see you, Joel and Carm. Nice to see both of you again. Last time I saw you, you were harassing me, as you said, but in a nice way. <laughs> down in Miami. So uh, I'm glad that we were able to make this happen. Yep. Yeah. And uh, just a very, very yeah, quick happy. story. on. We are very happy. So uh, I heard Mitch Album is going to be at the Miami Book Fair. I live in Miami. I said, I want to ask Mitch if he maybe would write a blurb for this book because we've got some things in common. And uh, sure enough, there was no Q&A. And uh, being the uh, big author that he is, they kind of had him cordoned off. And I saw a little, little crease in the screen, in the green room, and I went up to a Miami-Dade police officer and I said, my mother's a Holocaust survivor. Mitch Album's book is about the Holocaust. And she said, come right on, come right on in. And I don't know if Mitch was annoyed beyond uh, any uh, depth there, I, but uh, I don't, we made it happen. 
I don't Go think ahead, Mitch Bob. was annoyed. Uh, he was very gracious. And not only that, he gave me a free copy of his book. So don't everybody expect a free copy. But because I'm a survivor, <laughs> he gave me a free copy. And he wrote very something very beautiful in it. It is signed. And I will find the uh, inscription. Uh, Mitch, in doing research for this very interview, by the way, Mitch is going to be here till just before the top of the hour. And then Carmen and I are going to stick around. And I'm actually going to read you a blurb or two from my book. But this this hour is all about The Little Liar, which is uh, Mitch's new book. Mitch did write to Carmela right here, to Carmela, from one liar in quotes to another, I am happy to meet you. God bless you, Mitch Album. A uh, very nice description. Yeah, so and I'm perishing. Be- I don't know why I trusted. To, he took the book from me. I read the book, of course. And I read your other book, and I am embarrassed to confess, but I think true confessions, since the topic is truth, I confess I didn't read your other books yet, but I'm beginning, I read blurbs about your other book, and they are fascinating books, and I intend to read all of them now. And this will be the first... Yeah, this will be the first media interview, and Mitch has probably done 15,000 of them where he doesn't say a word because we don't stop talking. So I'm going to let yeah, him It's, 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 it's actually very nice. It's a nice change. You guys just go right on. Yeah. We can promote so, it for you, free of charge. So Mitch, uh, in doing the research, uh, you said something that really honestly resonated with me because um, I feel the same way. But you said your career happened by accident. What do you mean? Well, there's been a series of accidents in my career. I was a musician by training and trade. I never intended to write. I never intended to write anything. I've lost her already. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. Weird things happen on this show. Why I didn't? No, I hear an echo. I have to call the technician. I have no idea what's going on there. This this is why I didn't speak. I I was doing so well. I had both of you (laughs) listening to me, and then as soon as I opened my mouth, I lost one of you. I'm going to get rid of um, her. The, uh, the accidental part of my career is manifold. I, I was a musician. Um, I, wasn't, I was kind of a starving musician in New York. I happened to go into a supermarket and pick up a newspaper that they were giving away, you know, weekly newspaper for free. And there was an ad in it that said, if you have spare time, we could use some help with our newspaper. And I had spare time during the day because I worked at night as a musician. So I went over there and uh, they, I was the youngest person in the, the place by about 25 years, and they, they gave me an assignment that night to write a story about a parking meter meeting, uh, and uh, I'd never written anything in my life, uh, you know, for anybody other than school papers. But I had read a lot of newspapers, and I, so I wrote up a story, th- you know, based on what I thought newspapers sound like. And the next week, when I got the picked up the newspaper at the supermarket, there was my story with, with my name on it in the bottom of the front page. And I had that little tingle that you get as a writer. And uh, I sort of became a writer accidentally ever since. And then for many years, I was a sports writer. And that was all I really ever aspired to be. You know, I, I wrote sports. I broadcasted sports. I was on ESPN. And I was just very ambitious about that and never really looked beyond it. And then at age 37, I encountered an old professor of mine named Maury Schwartz who was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. And I um, started visiting him every Tuesday on all the Tuesdays he had left in his life. Um, we did a last class together in what's important in life once you really know you're going to die. And he really opened my eyes to how I was living my life at the time, which wasn't very good. It was very, very 
money and career and success oriented. And I wrote a book to pay his medical bills, which again was an accident. It wasn't supposed to be a popular book. I, we gave all the money to Maury and I was supposed to go back to being a sports writer. And then Tuesdays with Maury became something that nobody could ever have imagined. And it led me to a whole different career of writing and novels and books that are more about, you know, what's important in life. So I'm a, a definite example of um, man plans and God laughs, you know, and I've, I've stopped planning because I don't want to make God laugh anymore. And, uh, well, you know, that's a series of accidents that have brought me to you here. And that's fascinating to me because um, serendipity. I have a, exactly. I, I have a, 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 a sister who became a doctor. She, she was on a fast track BU six year med. And I've always been the, the one trying to figure things out on the fly and uh, never in my, I, I was just actually re rereading my book and I'm sure you've experienced this, but it's almost an outer body experience. Uh, it doesn't, it's surreal. It's something I've always wanted to do. It doesn't feel real um, as I'm reading it, but I'm curious. Um, I know you're a peppermint tea drinker um, to be at the level of success that you have achieved. I know you can say it's by accident and I'm sure there are, elements and components of that that are true but um wh where do you get this discipline what inspires your discipline well i've always been pretty disciplined when it came to working that was never a problem um and i think when you're writing you know i i've been blessed to know a lot of really good writers i play in a band with a bunch of them and i've talked to them all over the years about their techniques and all and every one of them treats writing like a job you know, this notion that you can just go to bed and, and right in the middle of the night, a bolt of lightning is going to hit you and you're going to wake up and start furiously writing down the great American novel. It's not how it works. You get up and you slog it every day and then you get up the next day and you slog it again. And I have my routine and my discipline and I really uh, I've been blessed not to have writer's block. Um, I have the opposite problem. I have way more ideas that I want to that I want to turn into books then I probably have years left on this earth and so I'm I'm hurrying to try to get as many of them down as I can and um how have your worries changed it's interesting um you know early on I know you were just full of this sort of what you describe as blind ambition you wanted to be the best sportscaster, the best writer. Um, and then obviously you wrote Tuesdays with Maury at the age of 38. But um, again, uh, in Judaism, there's an expression, deal. you're not supposed to compare something uh, great to something small. But in my own situation, um, you know, I, I had this crazy ambition to become a network news correspondent. And when I finally got to Fox News, I'd ne I was never more unhappy. It was not what I wanted. Um, and I kind of took a big step back over the last five years. But how have your worries and or ambition changed with time? Well, the biggest change was with Maury. You know, uh, at that time, I was working about 100 hours a week. And then, you know, every Tuesday I had to come to a screeching halt because there was no working when I was visiting him. And it wasn't before cell phones. So if anybody was trying to reach me, they would have to call his house, which I wasn't going to put him through. And so suddenly, you know, after working seven days a week, I had this one day of the week that was dead calm, you know, from work. And instead, I was just sitting with an old teacher of mine who was we were very close when I was in college. And and we kind of rekindled that relationship again. And I began to realize, 
you know, he was dying and yet he was 10 times more content with his life than I was and I was healthy. And I really began to sort of question the path I was on. And I think I was at that age and I was 37. If this had happened when I was 24, I don't think I would have had the insight because I would still think, well, he's different, he's older, but I got my life ahead of me. But I had already been working very hard for, you know, the better part of 13, 14 years. And, uh, you know, I, I think I realized like, this isn't satisfying. This is, I mean, it's, there's a lot of good parts of it, but I don't feel as happy with my life as he does. And I certainly haven't spent my life with the principles that he did. And I began to, you know, I th- and then I think Tuesdays with Maury, the book really changed my, it's not worries so much, but my ambitions and my, because, you know, I always tell the story that before Tuesdays with Maury, people would recognize you because I was on television. So they would recognize me for sports and they would stop me in airports and they would say, you know, hey, uh, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And I would, you know, say Patriots and I would go up the escalator, you know. And then after Tuesdays with Maury, uh, people would stop me, but they would say uh, my mother died of cancer. And the last thing we did was read your book together. Can I talk to you about her? And now you can't say Patriots and go up the escalator. You know, you have to stop and you have to talk and you have to listen. And you have to be sensitive to people's problems and their grief and their and their mm. love that they've lost. And and I, I have heard that and done that not a thousand times, not ten thousand times, but tens of thousands of times. Mm. And it changes you. It changes you. Yeah. It makes you sensitive to other people's issues. And that's why I've never written a sports book since, because the things that interest me now are, are those kind of topics. Well, you said that is fascinating, Carm. You said something very interesting. Uh, now it's the tw- uh, I have the copy of the twenty fifth uh, uh, year, uh, the anniversary publication, and you said somewhere I don't know where. Uh, don't ask me where. But you mentioned that when you wrote the book about Maury, you wrote it from the perspective of a young uh, person who has a mentor and learning from the older guy. And now after 25 years, you start to look at it as the, the as Maury, as identified. I'm the old guy. You, yeah. you are the older guy. You are a child in my eyes, but, but you are older than when you were 25 years ago. And you have to admit right. that the 25 years went by, like uh, in Hebrew, they say like a blink of an eye. You know, to me, the time went very fast. So there is this anxiety that, you know, we are going to run out of time and there are so many things uh, we would still like to do and see and experience. And it's a very frustrating part of it, you know, and I'm sure that uh, that's that's part of the aging process in general, regardless of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. But one of the one of the reasons, Carm, that I took to you so quickly is that um, I have always been someone who has looked up to older people and has has yearned for older people to share their wisdom with me. I was that way when I was a kid. Um, I, I, I was the only one at the dinner table after Thanksgiving when all the kids would scatter and the older relatives would sit around and, and tell stories. I was the kid who stayed at the table and I listened to them tell a story. And I always say, people always ask me, when did you decide to become a writer? How did you become a good writer? Whatever. And I said, I became a writer at the dinner table uh, because I would listen to my uncles and my aunts, many of whom were, you know, from the old country or children of immigrants. And they would tell stories and I would watch the way they told stories, you know, and my aunts would always get 
caught on the details. And they would say like, um, oh, it was 1945. Or, no, wait, when was Jack born? 1946. No, wait, it was 45. No, and the uncles would say, ah, yeah, no, shut up. We don't want to. Have... And then the uncles would tell the war story. And they would say, there we were. We were coming over the hill and the bombs were being dropped and everything was exploding. And I say, oh, that's how you tell a story. That's how you tell a story. So I always have gravitated to older people. And I've always. But um, I have to tell you uh, now for the book that we uh, that the draw wrote, uh, I said in the book that it's a fallacy to assume that just because you are old, you are wise. I think some of us true. age without the wisdom. You know, I am. For, but not you. I think I am <laughs> definitely one of those that could improve in that area. But I think. By the I way, Mitch, uh, we've already done a podcast or two, and Carm's uh, strategy. I don't know what is going on in her head is to tell everyone the ten reasons they should not buy our book. Uh, and one of them, of <laughs> course, is that she's gained no wisdom in life. So I think it might be reverse psychology. But Angela here says, by no, the way, this honesty, is the book cover Joel, with more shorts. It's honesty. Um, so why don't we talk Mitch, about the little liar? We're getting there, Carm, because I'm hosting the show and you're oh, along for the ride, bad, Carm. That's bad. how it okay, works okay. here. Um, Mitch, how do you feel when the one and only Jack Lemon was cast as Maury in the movie? First of all, if I ever talked to my mother the way you just did, I would have gotten right across the mouth. So I'm I'm in awe of this dynamic right now. Uh, but as wait till far you read the book. Your, as far as your question, um, yeah, uh, Jack Lemon and I became friendly, and uh, you know, there's kind of a bittersweet story to that. I'd never, no one had ever made a movie out of anything that I'd written before, so it was the first experience for me, and. I, I went to the set one day, Oprah Winfrey made the movie and she invited me to come and I went to the set and I found it very surreal because they were sitting in a room that looked very much like where Maury and I sat and they were calling each other Mitch and Maury, which was very strange to me. Um, I ended up never going back because it just was too weird. Uh, but that day, Jack Lemon asked if uh, he could talk to me and I went over and I sat with them and he started asking me a lot of questions about Maury, and I thought it was for the, the role, you know, the acting. But after a while, the nature of his questions, I said to myself, he's not asking me because of acting. He's he's sick. He's He must have something serious. And sure enough, he, he did. Um, and he hadn't told anybody. But it came out afterwards that he, he, he had a disease that he ultimately took his life. And that was really the last movie that he made you know, full role that he acted in. And he always said that it was his favorite role. And um, he was very sweet. He, he, he When he got nominated for the Emmy Award, I called him up and I congratulated him. And he was very nice. Oh, thank you. I said, listen, just one thing. I was teasing him. Don't forget the writer when you win because you're going to win. <laughs> and don't forget the writer. They always forget the writer. They remember the hairdresser and they remember the agent. and But they forget the writer. And I was just teasing him. And uh, sure enough, he won. And when he got up and he made his speech, the first thing out of his mouth was, before I say anything, I want to say, uh, Mitch Album wrote this book and he said to me, don't forget the writer. And I'm not forgetting the writer. <laughs> so he thanked me. And, it was, uh, a, back, was so, a backhanded yeah. thing, you know. Uh, yeah, it was very, he's a very sweet, very embarrassment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Pat Patricia wants to know, and then we're going to dive into uh, The Little Liar, which is Mitch's new book. But Patricia wants to know, did Maury live long enough to read your book? That's a great question. No, no. 
that's the thing I always try to tell people is uh, Maury never read a word of Tuesdays with Maury. We couldn't find anybody who was willing to publish it. Uh, I searched around for months and got told, no, no, it's boring. You're a sports writer. Nobody's interested in a book like that. And if it wasn't for the fact that I was trying to pay his medical bills with it, I would have given up. But, you know, sometimes you persevere for the right reasons. And we found one publisher just a few weeks before Maury died who was willing to do it. They gave us the money and I was able to tell Maury that a book was going to come out. But I never even started writing a word of it until after he passed away. And I always say, you know, look how large a classroom Maury has for a guy who's not even here to teach it. You know, so this is this is the effect that we have in our lives, that if you touch one life, you're going to touch others and you're going to touch others and you never know where your influence will stop. And Maury never read a word, you know, wasn't here to teach it. But but day after day in, in this country and in many other countries around the world, people are learning from him because his story goes on. It's like ripples in a pond when you throw a stone in. And and so, you know, I, I think there's something to be learned from the fact that he never even saw one page of Tuesdays. With well, Lord. at least he knew that it was coming and... Uh... His message was so, so significant that, uh, that we have to learn it. We have no choice yeah. almost but to learn it. Carmen, in, uh, in our book, I talked to you about just the absurdity of life. And one of the things that I find weirdly absurd and I think about weird things is that, put it this way, is one of three of us on this screen are going to get uh, guaranteed a New York Times obituary. And it's not me or you, Carm. <laughs> but the irony is can never read it. Mitch, does stuff like that ever cross your mind? You're going to get these accolades once you're no longer here and uh, you're not even going to be able to read that New York Times obituary? Okay. No. Who cares? I, not, not too worried about that. Um, I, first of all, I've, I've, had, I've had more than enough accolades in my life. I, I'm, I'm really just honestly just trying to live up to the, the I think they're, they sh they're way too complimentary most of the time anyhow. And, uh, you know, if I learned anything from Maury, it was that, you know, you can't be in it for masses of people. It's it's not masses of people aren't going to be there with you at, in your final moments. It's going to be the people who are the closest to you and and who you dearly love and who you need to be at peace with and, and, and in good terms with. And I am trying to focus on that in my life. So and they're not going to write obituaries. They're, they're going to remember me, hopefully. And so. Uh, yeah, don't, but don't, that was interesting that uh, that Maury himself um, he really wanted to enjoy his obituary, so he did it while he was alive. That was that he was, wanted to enjoy his his funeral. Funeral, his funeral, funeral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had every he had a living funeral. He had everybody uh, go around the room and say what they liked about the deceased or what they loved about the deceased. And then at the end, the deceased got up and was able to thank every one, <laughs> every of, them. one of them. That, yeah. that was courageous. But uh, Mitch black Widow comes to us from the Republic of Ireland. Uh, do you ever not like your work? Are you highly critical of some of the things that you do? Yeah, uh, pretty much all the time. Uh, I, I find it, I'm one of these people that re rewrites and rewrites and rewrites and rewrites and I'm rewriting uh, constantly right up until the last day when they pull it out of my hands and say, you can't touch it anymore. That's it. And then, and then I, you know, immediately the next day, think of more lines that I should have used or should have fixed. And I find it very hard to read my 
work after it's come out. You know, I, I don't sit with my books and, and read them because I inevitably go, oh, I could have, why did I use that word? I could have used another sentence here or there. And so I always just keep trying to make it better on the next one. But yeah, I think I'm like a lot of writers that way. I I, uh, I don't hate what I wrote, but I, I can always find something, some way to improve it. But unfortunately, it's already in print, so I can't do anything. <laughs> well, you can write um, another book. That's what I do. Yeah, I take it out on the next book. Whatever frustration <laughs> I had from the previous one, I just hammer it into the next one. By the way, Carm, do you know why I'm about to offer condolences to Mitch Albums? Do you have any idea why? Why should have done it earlier on. Offer... His beloved Detroit Lions, one game short of the Super Bowl. Did that hurt, Mitch? Did that and hurt? And listen, you are not into that, and th this is not the focus. Carm, let him well, ask your, the question. Your mom has spoken. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 um, I wasn't. Uh, we, we were. I mean, we were a little heartbroken because. You know, we got that close, but it's been 32 years since we won a playoff game. So we won two this year. So that was that's a little bit like, you know, getting showered in gold and then saying, you know, well, what about the towels? How come they're not golden? You know, you, can't, you, know, you can't be greedy. And maybe next year we'll we'll go a little further. You are yeah, the momentum felt direction. like it was going to. Yeah, momentum felt like it was on your side. Francie Hartog says, Carm, no offense to Mitch, is my her heroine. I watched this channel hoping to learn from Carm, signed a retired psychotherapist with multiple sclerosis, looking to learn new skills. Sorry to hear that you're going through that. Um, so let me tell everyone about The Little Liar real quick. Um, and here is the book cover. And you should go out and tell. You should buy it because Mitch has not sold enough books in his career. You need to go out and buy this one. But he, he's using that money for good. Uh, in The Little Liar, which is his first novel set during the Holocaust, Mitch Album interweaves the stories of Nico Crispus, his brother Sebastian, and their schoolmate Fanny, who miraculously survived the death camps and spent years searching for Nico, who has become a pathological liar, hence the name, and the Nazi officer who radically changed their lives. As the decades pass, Album Mitch reveals the consequences of what they said, did, and endured. It's a moving parable that explores honesty, survival, revenge, and devotion. It is Mitch Album at his very best. What's really interesting about this book, everyone, it is narrated by the voice of truth. Uh, Third-person narrator is the voice of truth. It is a timeless story about the harm we inflict with our deceits and the power of love to ultimately redeem us. Why, uh, why, why do you choose truth as a narrator? That's a really interesting choice. Well, because the book is is basically a parable about truth and lying, and I didn't want it to be a first-person account because the first person would be Nico, and uh, he goes from being an honest 11-year-old boy who's never told a lie to a pathological liar later in his life. So you couldn't trust him as a narrator. And I didn't want to do it as a third person. Um, but when I thought, well, this is really about a time, as Carm knows well, that truth was, was abused and, and, and all but choked to death, um, who better to tell the story than truth? And who better to speak and say, why did you do this to me? Why did you abuse me this way? And the book centers on a little boy, Nico, who's 11 years old, who's never told a lie in his life. And he's known in his neighborhood as, you know, honest to a fault. And when the Nazis invade, it takes place in Greece. And when the Nazis invade his town, they take all the other Jews and put them in the ghetto. But they find out about him 
and they separate him from his family and they say, we'll let you go back to your family. All you have to do is uh, a little favor for us for the next couple of weeks, just stand on these train tracks and there's going to be people and they're going to be very confused. Just tell them they're going to good jobs and good homes and everything's going to be great and uh, they'll be happy to hear that. And then after you're done, you can go back to your family. And because he's never told a lie in his life uh, and believing them, he does this every day. And these people get on the trains until the final day when he sees his own family and this little girl, Fanny, who he loves and who loves him, being shoved into a boxcar and he, they start screaming. And that's when he finds out that these trains are actually going to the concentration camps to Auschwitz. And the Nazi who tricked him doesn't allow him to get on the train. And so to add insult to injury, his family, the girl he loves, everybody is all taken away to the concentration camps and he's left behind. And the book cover is him running on the train tracks after the train, trying to catch a train that, of course, he's never going to catch. And the book follows him from that point for the next 40 years. His story, his brother's story, who goes to the concentration camps and blames his brother. Fanny's story, who escapes the concentration camps and spends her life looking for Nico and the Nazi who tricked him. And it shows the effect of one lie, that one lie, the first lie of his life how it affects all of them for the next 40 years of their lives. I have a question. Well, I have a few questions. But before I ask the question, Joel told me to be brief because I start to um, pontificate and carry on, but I cannot resist. First of all, why, why 40 years afterwards, which I think is a terrific idea, and you yourself, and I wrote this sentence down to be able to re read it to you. Um, it says, uh, long after the Holocaust is over, we still experience uh, war, we still experience the war. In other words, there are consequences, not the day of the liberation, but even 40 years later, and in, and now that Joel and I wrote this book, I realized that even 75 years later, uh, my personality is affected. And because right. of my personality, my children's personalities are affected. Uh, right. That's one thing. The other thing I have, I have my own little hidden agenda. I want to understand. So the, this boy, Nico, who was 11 year old, and he almost had this, uh, let's say, unusual uh, psychology that he would tell the truth even if it didn't work for him. And now suddenly he was forced to say the truth. While, why did he become a pathological liar? I, In my own head, I could not explain that. Okay, so the first one that you reference, um, I think the line that you were referring to is that war still takes victims long after the battle. Exactly. I, mean, I read it backwards. And, I read yeah. the second line yeah. first. And it, and it does. And, and, you know, many, I interviewed many people like yourself, Carm, for the book and knew many people like that growing up. And so I was well aware that it never ended. Uh, and, and I wanted to show that. I think too many Holocaust books, quote unquote, Holocaust books, which are wonderful, but they begin, you know, the day that the Kristallnacht happens and they end on the day of liberation and everything in between is just a concentration camp. And I think those books have been written, you know, enough of them anyhow, that I didn't want to write the same thing. I wanted to write something that looked at truth over over a large span. 
you know, I picked 40 years. It could have been 50 years. Uh, but I wanted to show the, the, the lifelong effect. As far as Nico becoming a pathological liar, I mean, that was that's kind of the conceit of the story. And, and it's a little Pinocchio-ish, you know, uh, when, you know, he, he can't he knows, tell the lie. His nose, his nose begins to grow. So for, for, for Nico, he, he was so wed to the truth his whole life that um, when he realized the ramifications of this lie that he told, the truth would no longer come out of his mouth. And it was as if it, it, he couldn't bring himself to tell the truth anymore because every time he told the truth, he was reminded of what the truth and what being that naive did to him and did to his loved ones. And so he tells first he tells a small lie and then a little bit of a bigger lie. And he and these are lies to stay alive during the time of the Holocaust. And he, he changes his name. He takes on a He changes a passport. He learns how to forge documents. And he sees how successful he can become by lying. And eventually it takes him over and it, it gives him a personality that he doesn't have to face what he did. But all along underneath it, and this is the other big theme of the book besides truth and lying, he wants to be forgiven. And I always say that all of my books contain a little slice of Tuesdays with Maury in them. You know, if you really went back to Tuesdays with Maury and kind of looked at the book, the new book. And in this book, it's forgiveness, which was something that Maury and I talked about a lot when he was dying, about how you need to forgive everybody, everything, he said. And, you know, you don't want to die still having a something between you and somebody that you care about because you think you're sticking it to them, but you're actually sticking it to yourself. And so I wanted to have a book that, you know, I wanted people to say, well, what's the worst lie you've ever told in your life? And what would you do to be forgiven that lie? And that's what Nico has to face his whole life. And that's why I wanted to span it over 40 years as he seeks forgiveness. And as Fanny searches for him to forgive him and his brother Sebastian refuses to forgive him and searches for him to bring him to justice. So I had a nice little triangle there of the story. So it's almost, Mitch, was there ever a, was there was there ever a lie that you told that resonated, you know, that that sort of prompted this theme in the book is there something that stuck with you something that you wish you hadn't had said yeah i'm not going to share it with you but, <laughs> okay. but yes okay no it's a, a, i'm curious the other question i have and then we'll get calm right back into the mix is this is something that you know as you talk about you know is a 40-year timetable so i'm just curious um, I don't think people realize the complexity that goes into writing. How do you structure your book? Do you create an outline? Do you have a storyboard? Is it just come straight from your head? How do you do it? Um, you know, everybody does it a little bit differently. I don't really use a storyboard uh, or outlines. Um, I think a lot about the story before I want to do it. I, I always pick a theme that I want to write about first. I don't pick plots or characters. I pick the theme that I want to try to attack, and then I try to find a story that I think will work. And so I've always wanted to do something about truth and lying, and I always felt uh, an obligation to do at least one story about the Holocaust to try to continue the literature of the Holocaust so that people don't forget about it. Um, and so all that kind of came together in this and, particular and, one. And also there is the, a somber detail in, in your story in the sense that uh, Saloniki, the Greek city, is basically removed from Europe in a certain sense. And you would think that the, uh, that part of Europe was not affected by the Holocaust. And then, right. Which, by the way, 
Uh, Soul Nikki had the, according to uh, an interview I heard with Mitch, Soul Nikki had the highest percentage of Jews of all the cities that the Nazis destroyed. That's pretty about amazing. About 50,000, I think. 50,000. Yeah, but, well, it wasn't an, just a number, but it was the percentage. percentage it was, it was just it under 40, 40%, 40%, just under 40% of the city had been Jewish prior to World War II. So you're talking about wiping out an entire culture of a city. And, and the largest Jewish cemetery in the world was in Thessalonica. It had nearly 400,000 graves, totally destroyed by the Nazis, not there anymore. All the, the, the tombstones were used for building material. So the Nazis used the, you know, the, the concrete and the stones to, have, to wage war on the Jews. It was horrific. And so I wanted, I wanted to set it in Greece because I wanted people to go, I didn't know that Greece was in the Holocaust. I say, aha. So there's still something still to be learned about the Holocaust, isn't there? Instead, well, of, there is instead of people, instead of people denying it, you know, I'm sure that Carm, you've seen the horrific studies that show that one in five people under 30 years of age in America believe the Holocaust is a myth, and and another another 30 percent can't say for sure if it's a myth or not. So you've got literally 50 percent of young people can't come out and say the Holocaust was a fact. That's that's beyond frightening. That's horrifying. And and so I tried to write this little book, The Little Liar, to try to at least, you know, hammer home because everything in the book is factual, except the four characters who are fictional that uh, here not only was it factual, but you haven't even learned all the facts yet. So before you start denying that, it by existed, the way, let's try to learn. By the way, uh, you mentioned in your book, um, Nico's. Uh, was it no uh, uh, the relationship between um, between Nico and Karadi Katalin? I am from a part of on the Hungarian border, uh, and I I was aware of the existence of this very famous Hungarian Gentile actress before World War II, who was one of the righteous Gentiles. And try to help the Jews in Budapest. And this yeah. this summer, Joel's family, his three children, wife, and myself, uh, we went to Budapest. And there are the shoes on the on the, on the Danube of the the, the ones yes. you know that you you mention in your book. Um, so there yeah. are historic well, facts. Carm, let me jump in and ask you. I mean. A couple things come to mind. Number one is I've lived with you for 54 years. Well, not with you, but close enough to you for 54 years. And uh, Mitch, it's amazing how little I knew about her story. Um, it's just incredible. Uh, you know, because we, as you can tell, we talk a lot in our family. Um, and most things, almost everything is not off limits. But, um, you know, I think subconsciously, consciously, whatever it is, I've heard different versions of the story. So going back through it, something you know obviously all these things resonated with me but um you know the the big sort of arc of this story is that at four and a half years old my mother had to go into hiding and it, it just today literally just today i was dropping my two girls off for a play date and they were kind of terrified to go to the front door and knock and i yelled at them and i said your own grandmother was hiding in a you know a catholic school when she was four and a half what are you afraid of in Miami Beach, and they <laughs> they walked out. And then the minute we got home, That's Grandma I pulled mean, up, and my, I raised them tough, Mitch. Uh, 
I think so because I, well, the four and my four and a half soon to be five year old who by the way is not playing baseball at a professional level yet, which is disappointing. But um, when the minute he saw grandma, he said to her, "Grandma, why did you have to hide? What what was so bad?" And she kind of put it in five year old terms. But I told um, her it happened in Europe, in America, everything is good, and even in Europe, it's perfect now. I yeah, believe in having illusions and losing them what? slowly. But Carm, at four and a half years old, you had a you had a lie essentially. You had to pretend to yeah, be I, a non-Jew and a non-Catholic school. But, so I'm curious what but I what resonated you, with you. I have to tell you something interesting. Carm, do you even listen to my question? I do you even your hear what I said already? Um, okay. I um, it's interesting about lying. Uh, lie. Don't think that everybody can lie. It's not. My, I have a daughter and my husband who just died after 63 years of marriage. They could not lie. I, I could look at them and, they, and I could read that they are lying. I said, come on, tell the truth. I don't even try. And they started to laugh. Joel is much better. He takes after me. <laughs> and I always said to Joel, if you, if you know how to lie, Never use it unless you are in a dire need or a, or a survivor mode. Don't use this thing because you can. I never met the little liar at that time. I, I could have said because you're going to slip into a situation that Nico had to deal with. But I yeah. definitely, definitely um, uh, dealt with that when he was a little boy. Tell the truth. Well, you know. You, I mean, your story about having to, you know, hide who you were and change who you were um, was one of the reasons I took to you so quickly, Carmen. It didn't take but 30 seconds of hearing, you know, your story to know that you are a piece of the little liar. You know, you're you're the real life version yeah, I of am a, I'm things that so many people had to do, you know, and I, 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 I salute you and I am, you know, I'm so sad that you had to go through that, but 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 by being here and telling people about your story, um, you've been very inspirational. And I wonder, you said to me before we started, um, maybe you'll want to ask me some questions. So I do have a question I would like to ask you. Um, one of the themes that I wrote about in The Little Liar um, that I thought was important was hope. Uh, first of all, I, I, I can't write a book without hope. I don't. You know, I, I've been actually criticized by critics for being too hopeful. One of them just ripped me in a in a in a review, and at the end he said, "Oh, he's just a king of hope," uh, like trying to insult me. Which I actually thought king of hope is not a not a bad thing to be if you can get to that throne. But but um, I wrote a scene in the in the Little Liar um, based on people like yourself and the stories that I had heard from them. Um, where the grandfather of the family pulls all the members of the family together every night. Um, and despite the horrors that they have gone through in, in Auschwitz, he says to them, everybody has to say one good thing that happened, that happened today. to them today. And, and what can you say, you know, in a hawk? so one of them says, I had an extra spoonful of soup. And one says, uh, my rotted tooth fell out. Of my mouth. Fell out. One, one says the guard that always beats me didn't beat me today. And uh, one says, I saw a bird. And that that desire to constantly find hope 
and a reason to get up the next day. As Viktor Frankl wrote in his beautiful book, you know, Man's Search for Meaning, the people who survived were the ones who did not give up hope, who believed that somehow tomorrow was going to be better. And the ones who just said, this is hell, they died. Did you find that to be true during that period of time? Did you, and, and did you well, have examples well, I was of people very who young. held on to hope? The, the story about my lying, I turned five in August of, of 44, and this was in December during the siege of Budapest when I was hiding in a basement and had to pretend that I was Christian because all the Christians mm. were looking at us very suspiciously. And I luckily knew the prayers, so I said them very loud. And I became sort of unwittingly, I became the hero of my immediate family because they felt they, I saved them in a certain way. And I knew I was doing it. But uh, hope is something I really believe that optimism and hope uh, are almost, uh, have a genetic aspect to them. And, hmm. and I think that, uh, I mean, Joel knows me well enough and other people, I tend to be, I tend to be optimistic. I cannot help it if there is a situation. She's the, she's the queen of hope. If you're the king, Mitch, she's the queen of hope. And um, it really, it blows me away because uh, the things that she's been through. Um, I, I, I have been right through other even. unpleasant things in life, definitely. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, RF Malone mm -hmm. has a question here, and there's a couple more things I want to get to with Mitch before he has to jump off to uh, do his thing at the 92nd Street Y with Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, RF Malone. Any chance The Little Liar is going to be turned into a movie? I recently read the book, and it is still with me. It is so powerful. Uh, yeah, it's actually been optioned uh, already. Uh, I think more for a series uh, than a movie. I think it's going to be one of those, you know, eight or ten part uh, series things is what they plan. But, you know, Hollywood's a strange place, you know. Uh, pretty much every one of my books has been optioned. Uh, four have been made into films. The other ones continue to get flipped around or whatever. So I always say when you're sitting there with popcorn watching it, that's when you know they actually made it. Until then, there's a lot of talk. But, but yeah, I mean, there is there are plans for it to be turned. But, but may I say something that is totally tangential outside? And I am no intellectual, and I don't know that much, but... Um, uh, there is a saying, the existentialists, Camus, uh, Albert Camus, the, the one who wrote The Pest, uh, right. he said, you have to live your life with no hope and no regret. Now, it, he didn't mean it in a negative sense. He meant right. that you have to create your own mental stability without hanging on to the hope issue so, so hard. You know that if if your hope bursts, right, then you cannot continue. Of course, that's why he's an existentialist. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> and it's not in style anymore. No. Um, yeah. So, uh, Mitch, these are uh, arguably the two most important people in your life, right here. I read a piece you did, uh, the Detroit Free Press. Uh, Mitch wrote, "These are his parents, um, Ira and and Rhoda, I believe." Album. Um, and Mitch writes this really um, this uh, Mitch has a tendency to be a little preoccupied with death. And I am um, partly because I love my parents so much, 
Uh, that's the real reason. But Mitch writes, how do you live in a world without parents? Who do you turn to for counsel? And how do you say goodbye to your only real hero? Uh, I'm struggling with this right now, Mitch. I just lost my father, my mother's husband of 63 years. Um, that's a big theme in the book I just wrote. Uh, you know, the guy was always, he was a depression era baby. He was a doctor. He was only worried about money ever. And then about seven, eight years ago, he said to me, I'm worried about time. Um, left plenty of money behind, but uh, couldn't cling on to the time. I'm just curious, um, the thought of losing Carmel, and we've had a stand-up comedian on the show prior to being true crime, said I'll have to change the title to I Survived the Survivor, which I never want to have to do. But wondering what kind of uh, life advice. I mean, you, you've talked to so many people. Um, it's the ultimate loss, your parents. How, how are you dealing it with is. it? And how, how do you uh, suggest others do it? Well, it was a stretch of time in my life when I was very young, right out of college and struggling as a musician. And uh, my mother, who always wanted to be in my life, maybe a little bit like Carmela, uh, uh, I couldn't talk to her because I wasn't succeeding. I was failing. And so I shut her out of my life. I didn't talk to her. If I would call home, I would, and she answered, I would say, put that on the phone. And this went on for almost two years. And finally, I grew out of it and got past it. And um, I look back on that time now, and I am so angry with myself that I let that much time go by, that I missed two years, that I could have made that many more memories with my mother. Um, I have many, many years after, you know, but um, I think that's what you learn is that you just have to um, get past the stuff that, you know, the son, mother, son, father, son stuff. There's always stuff that could, uh, I don't want to deal with it or I don't want to hear that or I don't want and recognize it. There will be no void in your life, no void in your life that will ever match the void that when your parents are gone and your best defense against it is to put sandbags up against that void filled with memories and make as many as you can with your parents while you have them. Uh, because that's going to be the only thing that's going to protect you against that rush of, of, of agony, uh, when they're gone and, um, you know, hold them in your heart. And I always say, you know, Maury said death ends a life, but not a relationship. And he was right, you know, uh, but the relationship, you have to invest in that relationship now, if you want it to go on, I always liken it to like a, a penny in a piggy bank, you know, Joel, if you put a penny in a piggy bank for all intents and purposes, it's gone, right? You're never going to see it again. You're never going to touch it again. You know, it's, it's gone forever. But if you take the piggy bank and you shake it, there it is, you know, and that's a little bit like when we lose our loved ones or our parents, you know, you can't see them again. You can't touch them again. But if you shake up your heart and you hear the memories that you've made with them, they're not a hundred percent gone. And I, I remember a story about each one of those pictures that you just put up because we used to tease my mother and father about they got married on Christmas Eve because <laughs> it was the only time they could afford a restaurant uh, to rent because they didn't have any money. And so uh, every other night was expensive, but because nobody was coming on Christmas Eve, they let them have the restaurant for cheap. I think it was a Chinese restaurant or something. <laughs> and, uh, and the other 
photo is when they took a trip finally at the end of their lives they they took a trip around the world uh, uh on a cruise you know for six months and they finally got to see all the places they wanted to see so every picture is a memory every 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 memory is is a is is a, is a feeling and uh that's your best hope and you still got your mother so you better treat her nicer because it's gonna be a time. It's gonna be a time when you're gonna. Let say to me yourself, let oh, me man. tell you, I am. Mitch, you're not the first one to say let that. Let me tell but you I, something. I get it. Our yeah. wonderful, wonderful Oddly. people who watch us, they always want him treat your mother nicely. But I don't think they. I need to be defended. I am not BSing yeah. when I say he's truly, truly perfect. I don't vouch for him as a husband or as a friend. I just, as a son, I can say that he's a very good yeah, son. I could, I could start to weep right here, but I won't do it because, um, I mean, and Mitch, this is why this, this uh, Detroit Free Press article that Mitch, first of all, my father was kind of this strong, silent type. My mother is much louder, yeah. but um, your parents are everything, you know, and uh, just the prospect. I, I I just feel like I will be rudderless um, no matter who else I have in my life. So, uh, Mitch, you know, I might be calling yeah. you when that fateful day comes. I hope it doesn't for many, many yeah. years. Joel, but maybe I'll be calling you. Joel, the awkward thing is that you you tell me you start to cry and be upset about missing your father, and I end up having to cheer you up. And when I'm feeling like I won't say what myself. She's, she's, yeah. Yeah. You. Um, I mean, it's hard to give you support with that. We argue, Mitch. She says it's my husband. I say it was my father. We argue about who's uh, who. Who should be mourning more? But um, Olivia here says <laughs> life. <laughs> Let's have some strange fights. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wait till you read the book, Mitch. Um, <laughs> life is hard, and it doesn't get easier. I'm watching my 82 year old father disappear before my eyes, and it is horrible. Uh, followed by this comment. Thank you for being here, uh, Mr. Album. I think Tuesdays with Maury's with Maury's one of the most important books of all time, which I would have to agree with. I'll leave you. Uh, we'll we'll leave off on this, um, Mitch. You're writing uh, about how you're walking through Yad Vashem, which is of course the uh, famous Holocaust Memorial Museum in Israel, um, and you were struck by the question. Um, people asking why did the Jews willingly board the Nazi trains if they knew those camps. Uh, if they were knew they were going to concentration camps, and I think this impacted your decision to write *The Little Liar*. How so? Well, there was a video of a woman who, uh, you know, Yad Vashem has lots of videos playing all the time of survivors and telling their stories. And uh, this woman was saying, people always asked her, "If you knew the trains were going to concentration camps, why did you get on them?" And she said, "We didn't know. They used Jewish people to lie to us. They would threaten to kill them or threaten to kill their families." and make them stand on the track. And they would say exactly what Nico says in the book. We're going to good jobs, we're going to good homes, we're going to the East. The Nazis were such liars that they even would give people, they would take the money from the Jewish people and give them a receipt that they said, now when you get there, you take this receipt to an office and you'll get Polish money, you know, or wherever they said that they were going. I mean, they, they, they even gave them baggage receipts, you know, and we all know when they got to Auschwitz or other concentration camps, their bags were just ripped apart and t anything valuable was taken and the rest were burned and the people themselves were were gassed and burned and yet they're here they are giving them phony receipts so that level of lying you have to be a certain kind of evil 
to 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 use people against their own people to lie to them and that's why i thought the little liar would be such a poignant story because here's little nico a little boy who's abused the same way so uh two final quick questions and then we have to let mitch go your favorite book of all time mitch album my favorite book of all time uh i don't know there are way way too many to pick one i i, I love as a as a novel Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, which is a story of a, of a pastor writing a very long letter to his, uh, his son, a very, very young son, uh, which I think is just a marvel of writing and, 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 uh, and faith. But I mean, I like, I like so many things. I mean, uh, the right stuff by Tom Wolfe is a favorite book of mine and it's got nothing to do with the meaning of life. So, you know, I, I, I read so much, it would be impossible to pick one. I'm sorry. And uh, last question, uh, you wrote Tuesdays with Maury when you were 38. What do you think uh, Maury Schwartz would say to the 60-something-year-old Mitch album? You're not done yet. You have to keep trying to get better and uh, keep trying to remember what, what we talked about, that you're not finished yet. And uh, he'd also... He'd also... Uh, probably say, you know, um, I love you. I miss you. Because he never missed an opportunity to say stuff like that. And then uh, he'd tell me that same joke about the ocean. And he told me like 150 times and every thought he said, there's two waves, two waves in the ocean and they're flopping around and having a great time. And then one of them suddenly sees the shore and begins to panic. And the other one says, what's wrong? And the first one says, look, the shore is coming up. We're going to flip a couple times and then we're going to hit the shore and that's it. We're done. It's over. This is terrible. And the other wave says, no, you have it wrong. You're not a wave. You're part of the ocean. And then he would stop and he would say, part of the ocean. Do you get it? And I say, yeah, I got it. I got it the first 150 times you told it to me. <laughs> now I got it 151 times, you know. So I'm sure he would tell me that, that story again. And we are all part of the ocean. And the way that we affect one another is the way that, you know, waves kind of go in and out of the water. And I believe that that's true. And I'm very glad that I had a chance to meet the two of you. Um, and I'm very glad, Carm, that you're around to remind people that the Holocaust was no myth and that uh, people were forced to lie. And and um, you're an inspiration to all of us. And I, I thank you both for taking time to talk to me. It's very kind of you. And it's an honor thank for you. me. That and, you, and, an and, and an honor for me as well. And uh, Mitch, too. I promise not to sneak up on you in, in a green room anytime soon. But um might call you one of these days if I ever lose my beloved mother for a shoulder. I am planning to stay. I am planning yeah. to stay a while longer. Good. Good. Excellent. Carmen and I are going to stick around. We're going to stick around. We're going to let Mitch go do his thing at the 92nd Street Y. Listen, and good this luck. was, uh, I think, this was Thank the you. honor um, of, uh, of a lifetime to have Mitch Album not only appear on Surviving the Survivor, but also... Uh, to write a blurb for my book. Uh, he is a gentleman and a scholar and is living proof that Maury Schwartz had an impact uh, on him and millions of other people. So uh, thank you very much, Mitch. Greatly appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank Bye -bye. you. Talk, talk soon. 
the great Mitch album. Carm, what do you think? I get I tense, Carm, because uh, I, you don't have a sense of time, and uh, time was limited, but I think you did well, Carm. I try to speak very fast and very few things so that I don't hug up the whole conversation. I think that it was very different from all the interviews I saw him give uh, to uh, CNN and all the media. I'll tell you why, Carm, because it's a different interviewer. Oh, in all fairness to me. Oh, make it plural. Oh, make it plural. Different, different interviewers, but I did the work as per usual. And I also, I wanted to hear, I read this piece he did about his parents. He was very um, disjointed after the loss of his parents, as I will be. I still am well, after the loss of my father. Don't give me, I don't need a funeral speech before I die like Maury. Carm, you better not die anytime soon or we'll have to fight right here. Uh, and I think Mitch, uh, I... I'm telling you, some of my worst anxiety right now is the thought of you disappearing off this earth. I will have to have all of STS Nation wrap me up like a uh, cocoon. Uh, Abby Tahaha wants to know, Joel, or Carm, why does Joel have control issues? Would you like to answer that, Carm? Maybe. Now we can go off the rails maybe, for a little bit. Maybe he inherited it from me. <laughs> By the way, uh, please share this interview. Um, I just want to show Mitch that we care. It wasn't a typical amount we have on a live because it's not true crime, but I think this was a very important interview. Um, so please, uh, please share. And also, let me put this up since we're talking about books. Joel, you can pre-order. Do this. It was in such a. You can pre-order. You can pre-order surviving the survivor right here uh, with a QR code. Um, now that Mitch is off, I can say he sold 17 million copies of Tuesdays with Maury. I'm hoping to sell 17 million in he, one until I actually, get there. Actually, Joel, actually, Joel, you have a hard time dealing with the fact that he sold for over 40 million in 47 languages or something. 40 million. Uh, I will have to sell 40 million, and I'm too tired to even go there right now. But um, okay, let's Carm, let's uh, let's finish up while we are okay and we don't go well. Today. Um, I don't know where the COE is, but I did ask her to put a couple of um, um, I pulled a couple of quotes from surviving the survivor that have never never been read and i'm gonna pull them up here they're not up on the screen um Joel, Carm, I'm gonna Joel, read. this is not this is not about us and i don't want you to do it please please Carm, don't i'm gonna do it that no that's uh that's that's a different thing here's from my book and i i'm bringing this up for Carm to react to it in her book, she's talking about uh, when she was a young girl. This is prior to being hidden in the war. And uh, she has an image and a remembrance of her father. And the books, it, it, here's a direct quote from the book. I have a few images of my father. I admit I confuse them with photographs, but I remember as if it were today. I will never forget. It is still in my memory that there was an upright piano in our home. He lifted me, my father, and seated me in front of it. I was a little scared of the height, but he wanted me to see him. And he said to me in Hungarian, he said to me, as long as you see me, 
You don't have to fear anything. And then he was killed in Auschwitz, Karm. How did that affect you? I it says as long think, as you seem I don't think it affected me the way you think uh, that it affected Tell me. Tell me how it affected I'm asking how it affected uh, you. It affected me. It made me very, very, very sad and missing him until today. But it didn't make me a scary cat. To the contrary, it made me not be afraid uh, as an average person, afraid. I think I'm a little bit weird that way, that I'm not afraid. I mean, I'm afraid for my children, but I'm not so afraid for myself because he said, you have nothing to fear as long as you see me. And I, I didn't see him after the age of four and a half. And I still grew up, I hate to say pretty, not scared. Uh, here's another little excerpt from the book. I have three here. Uh, these are actually from the book, which is available for pre-order right now. Jesus, uh, you're speaking about Maria Gorachanich. Who is she? She was the nurse who took me in, who took the nun, a nun, uh, no, nun who took me into her nunnery, which was at boys' school, and she she knew that if they found out, they would hang her. This is a nun that saved my mother, and I write in the book. I had never heard about Maria until now, more than 54 years later since I came into this strange world. So many bits and pieces of my mom's Holocaust story remained mysterious and convoluted. I still wasn't sure if it was because she never really explained it well or because I never fully wanted to understand it or perhaps a combination of both. Why, why do you think, Carm? It took me over 50 years. And I'll be honest, I still don't know that I really understand your story. Will I ever? I Boy, this the, is an uplifting, the, fun the, Sunday the, show. The Holocaust in our book, because I dictated some of you interviewed let's me. Talk, let's do a double show and talk about mass shootings next. Go ahead, Carmen. The, I think Maybe the just, Holocaust is a very short part of the book. And as Mitch album uh, uh, did it in his uh, The Little Liar, unwittingly, we did the same thing. Because after the, I'm now 84, 79 years, almost 80 years, my story goes the, after the Holocaust, another 80 years. His, his story went from the Holocaust another 40 years. The point being is that the Holocaust is not the major topic in our book. In our book, it's maybe one-tenth of the book. But the psychological consequences through writing the book, Joel and I together had to admit that certain crazinesses and certain weirdnesses that we both exhibit stem from that period and while the the shooting stopped and the deportation stopped and the concentration camp stopped the the consequences of the psychological impact did not stop and th there is now even the grandchildren have um, uh, experienced the impact of the holocaust psychologically speaking uh, Carm, I didn't hear a word you were saying because I was just thinking, will I surpass the 17 million copies that Mitch album sold? You are a horrible, 
complete you are utter a horrible failure. Horrible human being today. Um, Bonnie Lee Lopez, who comes from Vermont, chilly Vermont, Carm. You've already seen hell, so you aren't afraid. You face the evil already. Do you agree with that, Carm? Is that why you have no fear? You really don't have fear, I don't think. I don't have fear. As a matter of fact, there is a funny little story. My husband, who was born in New York, in the Bronx, uh, and and myself, at one point, we had joint offices with the same waiting room. I think today we should do another show on mass shootings and then maybe about... Uh... I don't know, animal cruelty. So if people say that you interrupted me, they will be right. We had. By the way, one person I was going to pull it up, but it was inappropriate, said that they wish you would let me talk more during that, Mitch, but I thought it was more important for you to talk. Go ahead. Go ahead. By the way, do you think Mitch liked us? I'm always, uh, can, I, so I want to be liked. Don't worry Everyone if, wants if to be he liked. liked us. I want to be liked. Do you think he liked us? Yes or no? What? Do you think he liked us? I feel like he doesn't like me, but he likes you. Is that possible? Joel, it's a stupid thing to consider, in my opinion. Mm. It's a stupid I think he might be questioning his blurb writing for the book after he reads the book because nobody, it ain't nobody his mother's knows. Holocaust. People think it's a sweetie, sweetie little book, and it's not so sweet. It's, it ain't his mother's Holocaust story, I'll tell you that. Um Joel, you are just Con saying everything now that aggravates me. Can we finish it up? Yeah, what were you going to say? Were you saying something? Yeah, I was saying something. Oh. You interrupted in the middle, but I don't know. Here's it. an important question, Carm. What do you think about Frederick, Milton, Roosevelt, Brown, Walden? May I say something to you, Joel? I'm going yes. to, you will look at my seat and you will see it's empty. I'm leaving. Right That's a question now. from Chelsea Whitaker. I didn't, I wasn't, she wanted to know. The, Frankie the, Biggs I, is yelling at me. I am, I'm going to discuss it later. I'll answer her. Uh, she can melt your heart. He can melt look at this. your heart. Uh, he might end up transgender because everyone calls him uh, a she because we've only had girl dogs. You might end up confused. I, I am, Joel, stop I am interrupting going, your mother. I am mother. going to leave, guys. I love you. Carm, there's another. Carm, I love you. Anywhere. I am more. going Carm, I have another now. excerpt. Carm, I have another excerpt. No, I don't want to hear it. So, guys, this is uh, the final excerpt. Um, a lot of this book has to do with death, which is a preoccupation of uh Did I albums, say but... an hour ago that you are a wonderful son? Yeah. Can I take it back? Oh, here we go. Here's a direct excerpt from the book. Um, and this is Carmela speaking. I feel like who's going to save me? Who's going to love me? She recently confided in me about their prospect of losing her husband. For Carm, this is prior to his death in the book. For Carm, losing her Roy was worse in her own mind than the tragic loss of her own father in the Holocaust or the loss of a child more than 50 years ago. The love of her life was dying, and a big part of her was, too, on the inside. Still, she refused to show it. I knew she was a survivor with a capital S, but I had never actually seen her survive in real time until now, when she was most vulnerable. vulnerable. Her world was stopping, but she kept moving. She went to the nursing home. She laughed with the nurses. She screamed at them, too. They laughed with her, but no one screamed back at her. They could see how tough she is. They had a sense she had been through so much more.
What do you make of that excerpt, Karm? I I have to. T- it it's true, but I have to tell you something cute. Yesterday, the there was a, a concert in the building where I live. Uh, the Miami Opera wants to promote itself, and they sent five young uh, opera singers to perform in our building. And one of the one of the songs that they sang was. It has something to do with Joel just said, so it's not like totally off. Uh, one of the songs was, <clears throat> I think it's called "On a One On an Encha- Enchanted Evening," and and it's a beautiful song by Roger and Hammerstein. And when the, you will ha- be happy to know that I was bowling away and using up my tissues while they were singing it. If anybody wants to hear it, it's on YouTube. Carm, what is it like for you day to day without uh, your husband right now? I spend an awful lot of energy not thinking about some of the feelings I have. Explain that. What, explain what you mean by that. Because um, it's like I just wrote, like I see you in survival mode in real time. What what, what does that mean? You spend an awful lot of energy. It's a long story. About. I'll do it another time. Give me some of it right now. Yet. Do you, is there a day that goes by where you don't think about him? Day, a day, a whole day, no. Um, Carm, do you think you turn off emotion when you're uncomfortable? Yes. Am I and like, what, is that just, am I like, is this like a, a trial? We switch to the yeah, trial? No, because, uh, I'm asking you about my father, your husband, and you're literally like, it's like a spigot, like a faucet. You just turn it off. How are you able to do that? And why am I not able to do it? I don't know if it's so good that I'm able to turn it off. It creates a certain numbness when you turn it off too much. Carm, last question is about me. Um, Do you believe... Let's talk about something interesting, you... But yeah, do you believe that I, I I never really thought this was the case, to be honest, I never even thought about it, never cared about it. But I do think I am a victim of generational trauma. I truly do. I deal with OCD issues, control issues. I just were you listening? I just not really. I was thinking about how many books I'm going to try to sell. You see, I'm very competitive. His listening skills need to improve. Um, No, No, tell me, tell me. No, I I uh, I was telling you that what were we talking about this second I was thinking of something. I was asking about generational trauma. 100% there is a generate but I tell you a secret. Whoever watches us may they may be from North uh, North uh, Dakota or from South um, uh, South Dakota or wherever they are from, everybody has some trauma in their life and in some in this their background. Our family just has the Holocaust, and and yes, it's transmitted. They they made studies that your even your genes uh, change faster than people assumed at first that there are changes in in human ge- uh, gene uh, because 
uh, this trauma was so powerful that it goes on from generation to generation. And definitely already the third generation, the grandchildren are uh, experiencing it. Definitely. It's, it's a very, Carm, do you find that you're still learning things about life? Because at 54, not that I don't think I'm not learning anymore, but it's amazing the amount. I didn't realize how screwed up I was, uh, really, until I wrote this book. Um, you know, I, didn't realize I, how deep I spoke it goes. earlier with my sister and she said yeah. that I didn't know this. She said, our mother, our mother said to her that it's a good idea if something is unconscious and you are not consciously aware of it, sometimes it's maybe better not to bring it to consciousness and leave it on the unconscious level. Because if you bring it to consciousness, then you have the responsibility to do something about it. And that takes a lot of work. Is it me, by the way, Mitch is a very nice guy, but he seems like he too is sort of, um, he has like a um, a bit of a a wall up, I think, to protect himself, yeah. not from us, but just life. Do you do you get that sense? Listen, we, uh, like I asked him if he ever kept a secret, and he said yes, but he you know he wouldn't even crack that open. And I, and I know where he was going with that because it's all in on Google. Really, give me a hint. I don't know what you're talking about. Which which was resolved. Some of the issues that he had was hundred percent resolved. Thanks. Right, well, let's to, leave that. For, thanks to Maury. There you go. Uh, Nacho's mom. I uh, have an idea here. A uh, few people have asked, Carm, would you ever have your own YouTube show? I, I am. I was born in 1939. I'm 84 year old. I have to take care of myself, and I don't have even the slightest energy to 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 start the YouTube. So I think Joel Although is doing, I have a, and Rihanna, my daughter-in-law, is doing a terrific job with. Them. By the way, I have an ingenious idea. What if you and the COE did a once-a-week show? You and the COE, uh, STS Nation, weigh in. I think it would be hilarious. They have a much more relaxed uh, relationship than Carmen and I. I would not be yelling and bickering. It would be uh, much more tolerable. Uh, what about Carm and the COE? Once no, the only way we could do this is if we could team up against you. Well, that will obviously happen. <laughs> no, um, that would no. Look no. at Tiff Knox. She said this in a very political way. She says Mitch is very contained. Um, I would tend to agree with that. I do think he is very. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. Carm, am I ever going to not be screwed up? I don't think you are that screwed up. You are just a little screwed up. That's good. That's within the norm. Mm. Um, I wish you would not be so screwed up. I wish you would terminate the session now. Carm, any final thoughts then? Uh, what did you think? Your final thoughts on Maury, uh, not Maury, on Mitch Album and Maury Schwartz. I think before you before you answer that, I, you answer may that. I say something about about Mitch Album? Mitch Album's books are spiritual. They they are positive. They try to help people navigate through life. That's what he does. His books are not. They are not 
novels of of angst and 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 desperation they are trying to infuse the world with um with an op- hope with hope yes he believes in hope yes um karm's children and grandchildren are so blessed i agree with that but there's also Not as we're so talking blessed. about right now there's a generational trauma that comes along with it. So oh, Joel, uh, every this generational, he will ride it I'm like a you, horse. Why do I have OCD? Why do I? Why well, do I have OCD to control things? Why do I? Is your father who had? Uh, why, why am I constantly worried? Why am I worried? Why? Why? Can we just do this on our own time? Lorna McKenzie goes. This feels like therapy. <laughs> it's, um, it begins to feel boring to me. Carm, why weren't you more upset that uh, that we welcome Frederick Milton Roosevelt Brown into the family? I thought you might throw a tantrum. See, he is he is so unbelievably cute that you have to have a, a heart of uh, steel, or or what is stronger than steel? Um, the, uh, I, uh, I don't know. Is what is stronger than steel? Graphite? No, I no, the graphite. The graphite is not even uh, a metal. iron. Iron? No, steel is stronger. Is iron. Steel is stronger. Steel is good. The good word. You have to have a heart of steel if you don't like Freddy. Uh, the COE can't get onto the computer to show you. Fred. Well, I, he's posted all over Instagram. Yeah, surviving the survivor the right now. She wants to see the puppy. Titanium is stronger Joel, than steel. Joel, she says, show yeah. the puppy. Uh, Ileana, I, I can't on here, but it's on at surviving the survivor, at surviving the survivor. Um, it's so small Carm, that it looks like a little rat. What? Uh, Ned Smith has it right here. Uh, this is the full proper name. Frederick Milton Roosevelt Brown. Waldman Milton was my grandfather. Um, the be M&ER prepared, from Mabel Rose. Um, here is the puppy. Here is the puppy. Oh, boy. Here we go. Here's Frederick Milton Roosevelt Brown. Uh, no, hold it up a little higher, Z-Bugs. And, and uh, J-Max, show everyone your rock star mohawk that you got today. You got, oh, there goes the mic. Show's completely come off the rails now. Everyone on the big screen is turning off their TVs. Your mohawk's a little deflated. Come on. You're also muted, Carm. You muted yourself, I think. Um, very quick reminder, programming okay. note, tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern time, we are doing a show. Look at this. Look at about... this. Is this cute or is this cute? It's Hold cute. his face up towards the camera, though. You can't see his face. Next thing you'll ask me to ask her to smile, him to smile. I wonder what kind of vision he has if it's 2020. They have eyes. He has beautiful eyes. Yeah. They're like greenish gray eyes. Um, quick programming note. Thank you to Sky Ricky. Look at this. This is a super sticker, not a super chat. Very okay, kind, Sky take, Ricky. Take the doggy, and we are gonna. Keone Pink says, uh, "Ultimate cuteness." Brooke mm-hmm. Nelia says, "Love Carm." Someone else says, "Love him," meaning the I dog. have an announcement. Happy birthday! Yes. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to Alf. Who's Alf? Alf. Elf. Wrong oh, accent. happy birthday to Elf. Oh, oh, like friend of the show. Happy birthday, Elf. Happy I thought you meant Elf, the guy. Happy birthday, Elf. Okay, um, guys. Quick final announcement tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern time. The only fans murder that is Courtney Clenny, 
She was back in court this uh, past week and her parents have been arrested. Uh, We'll be covering that tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And then during the day tomorrow on the Best Trials channel, we will be streaming, continuing streaming coverage, gavel to gavel of Michelle Traconis. Uh, Will she ultimately be convicted? Only a jury of her peers knows. Lindsay Shea says it best. Where did it go? 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 She says, Carm is done. That is true. So on that note, uh, the Waldmans are headed to dinner. Love you, America. Love you, Mitch Album. Love you, Tuesdays with Maury. Love you, Detroit, Michigan. We'll see you tomorrow. All day, gavel gavel on Best Trials. 5 p.m. on that you became like we lost our way after you left. You should have stayed with us. You should have. Uh, love you all. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.